Like we are not one of those agencies personally that get want to get a thousand creators uh, just because they can go to brands and say like, oh, we have a network of one billion views. Who cares? That is not value to me. That is numbers. That is vanity metrics. Okay. You want to have someone that can be really like a good option for your brands. So we prefer to have like less people, but really selected. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to my social life. This is the podcast where you can hit the life stories behind the people on social media. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. Before we get into today's conversation, there's a couple things that we need to go over first. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to leave us a positive rating and review. Share this episode with a friend and subscribe to the show. Put up brand new interviews every single Monday and a brand new takeaways episode is an audio exclusive where I sit down and break down the most recent podcast episode of the week every single Thursday. And now, today on the podcast, we are joined by Alessandro Bogliari. Alessandro is the CEO and co-founder of the Influencer Marketing Factory, a global influencer marketing agency that helps brands and companies launch influencer marketing campaigns on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. They've worked with the likes of Google, Sony Music, Universal Music, Warner Music Group, Bumble, Snapchat, Meta, and so many more. And I cannot be more excited to have them here on the podcast today. Alessandro, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have you here. And where I want to start today... I want to go back to the beginning, like to, to like I like to do the whole backstory. So you grew up in in Milano, right? And from my understanding, building businesses, kind of all your life growing up, even like around the time sixteen when you started. I think thirteen, you created your first website or something like that. So give me a little bit of background about who you were growing up. Wow, you did your homework. I appreciate that. Yes, you are totally right. So, and of course, like you know, when 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 we say like business, uh, when you're like sixteen. Uh, you know, I mean, nowadays it's a bit easier because there is a lot of uh, components already ready to go, right? Back in the days, it was uh, mostly doing things like on a notepad and HTML, you know, easy things. So when I say like business, it's I'm going to go more there, but like in detail. But uh, um, yeah, I, I, I did my first website when I was like 12. I'm now 30 years old. So that, that was like 18 years ago. And again, you know, it was not that easy to create. Like WordPress was not there. Uh, Joomla was there. So again, I'm talking like a boomer, but if anyone is listening, they know what I'm talking about. It was Joomla and uh, Drupal and all the others. Okay, Before that, that, that WordPress getting into that. So long story short, I started making a first website with like, you know, frames, uh, really boring things, uh, basic HTML, CSS was not a thing. Uh, but it was, I was so into that that I was able to put something on the internet and people were able to see like that was that was amazing and again like you are 12 nowadays it's uh, everyone is used to because of um, all these different way, ways to create websites right but back in the days just the idea that i was able to put something there and people see it like it, it blew my mind and so i started li- like that and when i when i was 16 15 16 i started doing websites for other people so i was a sort of like freelancer I was get get paid like nothing. Like people really like like I was so happy just to create websites that maybe like I, I got maybe fifty euros for a website. It's the equivalent of maybe what now seventy dollars. Like it, but it was it was just exciting me that I had clients in a way, and so I started like that uh, at sixteen, and then when I was eighteen, I actually created my real first, if you can call it business. Uh, it was like this website, of what to do in Milano, called Milanoids. And we had this a team of 20 people. Um, and we were not really that good in monetizing that, but I learned so much because uh, everyone knew about us in Milano, okay? 
And it was uh, this WordPress website on what to do in the city. And again, having a team, you know, taught me leadership and, and responsibilities and tasks and so on. So long story short, not really a business in terms of monetization, but anything else that you cannot really study. Uh, I, I learned it that way since I was really young. What's the the entrepreneurial culture like in Italy and, and Milano specifically growing up? Because I've heard you say in the past that young people aren't necessarily taken as serious as they are in Italy versus United States. So what was the reaction like from friends and family as you're kind of going all in on this website, taking this entrepreneurial venture at 18 versus what other people might be doing at that age? For sure. This is a good, good point. Uh, Italy, this is what I say all the time. Italy and a lot of other European countries are, especially Italy, it's a lovely place for vacation. If you retire, if you go there as, uh, let's say, an American and spending like a week, you know, in Tuscany, uh, when it comes to work, business opportunities, uh, and especially if you're young, like, nah, nah, it's not the place. Uh, Everyone looks at you mostly on the age and people are like, hey, you are only these, you don't have enough experience. I mean, Italy, it's a place for all people. It's it's, it's unfortunate to say, but it is the reality. So at the time I was, I was, I always started and, and worked together, like at the same time. Right. So I do remember I was maybe going to, you know, high school and I did like classical studies. So ancient Greek, Latin, like really heavy stuff, you know, and after, after school, um, I used to, you know, stay with my friends, whatever. But after maybe certain hour in the afternoon, I was going to this other place and working for this uh, newspaper where I learned how to use graphical things. And that was before that I started my bachelor degree in graphic design. And I was really passionate about that. So I was doing like crazy hours. I was doing all this really difficult high school. I go, I was going there and uh, and and you know working and maybe up to two, three in the morning, you know, and then the day after. And, and also when I was 18, I was having this first startup, but I also started working in an agency, uh, you know, and so I was going to college, like university during the day and at night I was working. So, so not a lot of people find it like, I think that a lot of people thought of me like, why? You know, they were like, why? You could just be here and, you know, you, you study, you have the best time of your life and everything. And during high school, I, I did enjoy it and I had like the best time. But I also also was working because I always was like in Italy a lot a lot of people stay at home with their parents up to thirty plus thirty five plus like it's crazy. I was like I don't want that. I want to be completely like you know independent. And likely my parents are also entrepreneurs, uh, so they understood that and they were happy. And actually at the table during dinner all the time we were talking about business and how to grow things. So so they accepted it, but other people my age were like not really in- interested in that. So maybe they look at me like, why do you even bother? But, you know, so that, that happened, I'd say, yeah. Do you think the reason that you were independent was because your parents were entrepreneurial? Like why, what led you to being so different from your peers? I'd say so. I mean, like me, my parents have not always been uh, like entrepreneurs. They were before like really good position and they're, you know, different companies in Italy. Uh, and then more than 10 years ago, they started a publishing house. Um, but always they work a lot, you know. And so, so I came with a good position, you know, like, uh, don't, you know, like I was a good place in Milan and everything. So, uh, but I always saw that if you want to achieve things, you have to work. And that was a good example. Like I didn't get, get for granted anything. So they, they, thanks to them, I traveled the world even when I, when I was a kid. Uh, but I always understand that it didn't come for free. Because of work, and so when they started their own or company, 
uh, it was cool because I was actually helping them at the beginning, doing like a graphic design for covers of the books. And that under, like in that moment, I started understanding what is a budget, the timelines, uh, deadlines, uh, and so on. And so thanks to that, like I started understanding, okay, something is when you study things and something else is the real world. So I'd say that 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 was a big a big thing because when you come from that right uh, and you understand is no one else is going to help you but yourself you're not going to have a salary for sure uh, then something clicks in your head is like okay <laughs> this this is this is different than having a salary and in my own life before working like creating this company and co-founding it I never been an employee in my life I always worked as a freelancer or now as an entrepreneur never been on a salary so I don't I, I never experienced that thing of like no matter what I do, at the end of the day, uh, at the end of that month, I'm going to have this, the, the, the paycheck. Never had that. So I don't know. Some people think I'm crazy, but uh, I like it that way, you know? Of course. And kind of, so with having no paycheck then, a uh, quick question about, about millinoising, because you said that you didn't really make a lot of money from it because you didn't know how to necessarily monetize it correctly, but you still had a team of 15, 20 people. So were, were they volunteers? Like, how are you encouraging people to join your company when it wasn't making a lot of money? Like, what, what, how did you do that? So first of all, all of us, we were between like maybe 18 and 20 years old, something like that. Again, entrepreneurship and, and work like in, in Italy, it's really difficult. So even back in the days, and now talking about 10, 12 years ago, um, if we were able even just to get tickets to concerts for free, arts, museum, and so on, you were already like, wow, this is the best job possible. Because people were mostly writing about things and they had to go to a concert and to uh, um, um, uh, an exhibition. And, you know, it was fun. It was like uh, getting all together after, you know, the university, uh, you know, and so on. So uh, that, that's why, like, it was not a real company in terms of, it was not no HR. It was not like, it was, it was, a, it was a mess in terms of that, but uh, it was still structured. Like we had an agenda, we had uh, publishing, we had different departments, like one for music, one for art and photography another one so so each of of the people were like you know what i'm not making money like you know the founder of this is not making money so i'm happy also not making money because it's uh, i'm learning i'm getting stuff for free and again at that age maybe in the states is different because you have this uh, business mindset that you want to make money from day one but instead in italy it's like i'm having fun i'm learning things i'm getting stuff for free and believe me like again in italy if you're like 18 and you can go to a festival for free that's it. That's enough, you know? So how we, uh, we got like, people there, it was an exciting moment to create something that was quite new in Milano. So people wanted to join just because of that. We were getting a lot of, you know, like uh, buds. And, and again, like they were getting a lot of stuff for free. It was a nice way to be all together. So nowadays you have like, you know, TikTok houses. Uh, back in the days was mostly let, let's meet at this cafe. And, and let's, uh, you know, like uh, schedule the week coming. That, that was it, you know. That's an interesting point you made about how in the United States, when you're 18, 19, you're thinking primarily about money when you're starting a business. How much money can I make? Will I exit for hundreds of million dollars? I'm curious, having the reverse mindset growing up in Italy where money's not, money's obviously important, but it's not everything. It's not the whole reason behind the business. How has that mindset impacted your career thus far? Has not caring about money allowed you to, in the long run, actually make more money? Exactly. So, so, you know, more than like, I'd say more than not caring about the money, because I do, I'm not going to lie, like I'm, I'm doing this not for the glory. I'm doing this because, you know, but uh, we were able uh, as a bootstrapped agency in less than three years to get a multi-million dollar company. And we went to seven digits after one year. So why do we do that? I think because coming from Europe, because of an historical 
reason. Like back in the days, I'm talking about, I want to get like in, into history channel, but like uh, when back in the days in, in Florence, you know, I'm talking about 14th, 15th century, like there were little shops, okay? And um, maybe there was the owner that started making shoes. And then only after they started making a profit, they get an assistant. And then after making more, they open another shop next to it. So what we do in Europe as a mentality, we scale in a safe uh, way, okay? That's why I never, like every week we have a VC like telling us, do you, do you want money? I, I don't want your money. Mostly because I don't want to get in the position where I'm going to burn cash. And unfortunately, this is something that I see all the time in the States. I, I love the entrepreneurial mindset of uh, the United States. That's why I'm here. The, the endless opportunities and scale is the limit. But also what I don't like it is that nowadays it's that easy to get money. And whenever you have money that is not yours, you're going to burn cash. And that's why a lot of companies, they fail or they don't get to a profitable point, mostly because here you are 100 millions. Play with those. Nah, I don't like that mentality. I'm like, only when I'm able to get to a break even on certain department, I'm going to get another person. And that's why we calculate, for example, the revenue per employee. You know, I want to be in a safe level where tomorrow I don't want to, uh, you know, like fire 15 people because we just went too big and then we don't have enough clients. So long story short, uh, the, the con of that it is that Italy doesn't give you the entrepreneurial mindset, but on the pro is that you have this sort of, how can I be safe without mess out things? And so how can I grow something in a really organic way without necessarily needing VC money? And also how can you actually make something that is going to be stable? So yeah, I think that I learned that way. I got the best of, of you know, these different things. And, and that's why I'm not a big fan usually of uh, necessarily VC money, because sometimes I saw many, many terrible stories, a lot of nightmares of uh, you got the 1 billion and we saw companies closing in six months, even with 1 billion. So money is not everything, I'd say. It's about approach, mindset, mentality, uh, and, and, the, and the strategy that you're going to have. You know? and, and hard work, hard work. It's number one, for sure. Of course. And there's like VCs know when they make these investments that a lot of them are going to go to zero. So they know that they're not necessarily investing in every company that's going to execute and make the returns on their investment. Cause you're hoping for that, that unicorn to offset the cost of all the losses of, of your, of your bad investments. Yeah. 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 No, that's the thing. Like in Italy, we don't have that many VC. If you get maybe $300,000 in investment, whew, you're going to go on the news. Like here, if you get that, it's not even seed money. It's like it's beer money, okay? So again, not having that in my, in my mind, and I met different founders that are getting money and everything. Uh, what I say all the time, I, I wouldn't cheer to get, uh, you know, uh, maybe, um, I'd say a series A. I mean, it's totally cool, good for you. I would cheer when you're profitable. That is for me, like cash is king in my opinion, and more than the valuation. Valuation is based on nothing. It's, it's made up numbers. And what I'm seeing is that in this nowadays economy, there is a big problem because no, 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 people don't care anymore on actual profits, you know? It's about the big valuation. But that is, that is just making things a bit like a bit worse and no one getting the business. Now it's about actually making an impact or making profits. It's more about how much can I raise? And that's, to me, as a business person, it's, it's just not really in line with what I, what I think, you know? Why do you think there's such a big focus on how much you raise versus how much you're actually making? Because it's, it's big numbers. You know, like what I noticed that, and again, to go back to what I was saying before, what I noticed is the big difference between Europe and the States. We start with one person, two people, five, 10, and you scale. 
in the States from day one, you go out with a business plan that is going to sell the dream. And it's going to say, I'm going to kill it. I'm going to do 1 billion next year. The, no one does that. But still, you hire 300 people. Can you imagine the difficulty for HR, for your approach to work, structure in a company, if you get on, on board so many people, you're going to have so, many, so much expense in marketing. It's, diff- it's easy to lose control. So I think that on the one end, it's super cool to say that, but something is to get the money, something is how you spend them. Like, can you have a long-term strategy there? So it's cool because everyone wants to say, like, I raised 100 million, because now it's the phase of raising money. We saw that with uh, SoftBank, uh, with, the, with the Vision Fund. Every day, I'm hearing about billions here, millions there. But again, at the end of the day, in my opinion, it's, is it profitable? Is it a real business? Are you making money? Like, or are you just getting, are you hoping? to bid on something and get, you know, a return. And that, that's why, again, I'm, I'm not a big fan of that, that approach to business, you know. That's another good point too, about how when you hire so many people so fast, things can get, can get broken. And I hear often about how listening to different VCs or entrepreneurs talk, how once you just, you just move fast and break things. And then once you get to a point, you go back and fix them. But if you're bootstrapping it and growing the way you are, when you only expand, when you have the financial means to do so, you're going to be doing it in a in a more comfortable way. And you're not going to be breaking things as you scale as well. 100%. Yeah. And so let's jump back to kind of the impetus of influencer marketing for you. From my understanding, you wrote your, your master's was on, your thesis was on influencer marketing, correct? Correct. Yes. And so this was what year? This was 2016, I believe. Oh my God. I have all the time this problem in my life of remembering like where I was, where, because I changed a different series, but uh, it, it might be, it might be like five, Five years ago or something like that. Yes, could be. Yeah. And so this was very early. I mean, obviously there had been some small things happening, but like for mass adoption, this was very early for influencer marketing. So I'm curious why you chose to write your thesis about it. I was working in the industry. So I was into that. I was fascinated by it. And I was um, I was working as a growth hacker. That That's my back. I mean, like I did a graphic designer direction bachelor degree. Then I went into a master's degree uh, for digital innovation and management. So I changed different things in there to combine different industries and skills together. But I always be in my life, I'd say a growth hacker. I love the idea to exploit things. And how can I, you know, I, I never had a, a big budget in my life, you know. And so I was like, how can I use this small idea and scale it up? So I, I always be like a growth hacker and I work a lot on that. So while I was uh, working as a growth hacker, I, I got in, into, the, into the influencer marketing arena. And I was like, you know what? Like, there is a lot of confusion. There is the Wild West. Everyone is like paying uh, people like without, without a framework, without an idea of like, okay, I'm going to pay this person this amount because of. Nah, it was random. Uh, you remember, right? It was random. Like there was no regulations, no rules, no no price, price list. Not that now you have those, but now at least you have an idea. So I was like, long story short, how can we get influencer marketing in the academia that was missing it? Like I, I maybe I found three little papers about influencer marketing back in, in 2015, 16. That was it. So academia was really slow in picking up what was influencer marketing. I was like, what if I write a thesis about this? Since I'm working on this now, I'm into that. I have a lot of knowledge. I have a lot of data and insights. And my thesis was like, let's create a really super easy calculator. There was the Instagram money calculator was like, let's find a way where I take in consideration certain data and insights. And I put the number there and I get a sort of potential like earnings per 
follower engagement rate, geolocation, industry, and so on, how much should I get paid? So I did my survey, I did my calculation, I even created uh, in, I think it was in Node.js, a small program where you were able to scrape the information of an Instagrammer, put it in a username there, and you got this um, amount. And then after many websites got that, but I, I created it back in like f- five, six years ago. The idea was like, how can we make these uh, serious as uh, paid advertisement on Google, Facebook, you name it. At the beginning, it was like, seriously, like, oh, take this money, do this, you know, post. I wanted to say Instagram uh, influencer marketing can be a serious matter and should be taken seriously as any other branches of marketing. So I said, let's write this thesis. And it was 100 plus pages. Not a fan of writing academia stuff, but hey, I was doing my master's, so I had to do something. So I was like, I hate these, I hate my master. How can I make it a bit better? Let's write a thesis about what I love, that is influencer marketing, and yes. So that was five, six years ago. I'm curious how much of a shift it's been for people taking influencer marketing as seriously as other marketing avenues. You said back in 2015, 2016, it wasn't taken seriously. Is it on par with other places now or is it still not getting the respect it deserves? I think that we are getting there. I'd say that it's still, you know, it's it's like, you know, uh, back in 2019 when, you know, YouTubers were at the end of the ch- the chain, right? <laughs> like it was every everyone else and then YouTubers because they have this, this new media, that like this, this idea, right? Behind that, we're like, oh, whatever. And influencer marketing before it was like, Ah, let's just put some money in the marketing mix and let's see what happens. Luckily, now it's opening up because of what happened with COVID, more people spend time. So I'd say that nowadays, brands and our clients, they expect to see an ROI, they expect to see certain numbers, they want to see a forecast even before starting a, a, a campaign, right? So it's more data-oriented than before, for sure. Um, is there still some confusion and misunderstanding? Yes, because there is still this idea that, especially with TikTok, that everything is going to be viral or that, you know, there is still something there. And I think that the main problem is the generational gap, right? Because a lot of the times, some companies are smart enough to put someone young in charge of influencer marketing. Some other times you have a 50 years old. With all due respect, I'm not saying that every, everyone that is in their 50s that understand social media, but come on, it's a different lingo. It's a different way to be on TikTok if you are in your 50s compared to in your 20s or, you know. So so long story short, I'd say that it depends by the type of brand, but we saw an increase in budgets, an increase in overall campaigns during the year. So before maybe it was like, let's test it out once a year. Now we have clients that every month, you know, almost on a retainer, they have a campaign. And maybe they test on a on a, an app and then they open up to other apps that they have or they open up in a market with a geolocation and open up to other countries so so we definitely saw a big increase and uh, um so yeah like overall it's 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 just not what was like six years ago now finally people get it the more money involved and more education overall and so I believe it was, so you did your thesis 2015, 2016, you moved to Miami around 2017 and start the agency shortly after that? Yeah. So let's say that I worked with other people when I was in Miami, uh, didn't go as expected. So I was like, I think I'm ready to create my own agency. Again, I was, uh, I'd say a good, a good growth hacker, a uh, big fan of SEO. And in fact, now, like after only three years now, if you type like influencer marketing agency, we're third on Google. Uh, so it was, it was a lot of work, but again, I was a, a big fan of SEO, growth hacking and so on. So I was like, you know what? I know these things. 
uh, my co-founder comes from more uh, corporate world. So we said, I know startups. I know how to build things. And my co-founder is like, I know how to structure things because I come from uh, pharma and banking and all these type of things. So I was missing the proper business structure, but I had that passion and that growth hacks. And my co-founder was like, I know how to put a structure on all of it. We put that together and, and we, we got set. So, so, but it started in Miami. It, 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 we still have our headquarter in Miami downtown. Then I moved to, to, to New York, but we have people across uh, eight different states in, in the US. And when it comes to Europe, we have people uh, uh, in different five of different six countries now. So we've been remote since day one. I, I love the idea of being remote even before COVID and people love it too. So why not? And your co-founder is, is Nicola Bartoli, right? And she was your co-founder with uh, Milanoise? Correct. Both, both from Milano. So long, long, long story of uh, working together. So that helps, right? Because you know, you know what to do, what not to do in, in, the, in the years coming and everything. So that definitely helps. Uh, I, I heard stories about founders meeting randomly, right? On, on, on our group. And sometimes it works. And it was like one of these story, fantastic story. Some other times I, I heard about nightmares of people that were not meant to be together as founders. And that is really important because again, especially if you do, if you create an agency, it's a fast paced environment. It's really stressful for your mental health and everything. You need to have a founder and a co-founder and, and people on top of management that you, you talk the same language. If not, it's going to be chaos and anarchy. So, so that helps a lot. Yes. And so I'm curious, so we talked about how, how one, you, you did this without funding. So obviously you, you kind of just, you bootstrapped this business, but also you did this from my understanding because you moved from Europe to Miami. You, I'm assuming you didn't have a ton of connections or anything like that. So you really built this agency from the ground up with, with nothing. So I'm curious how you were able to get your first clients. Because whenever anybody starts an agency, whether it was just a college student in their dorm room with a laptop, getting that first client is a hurdle so many people struggle with. So with the Influencer Marketing Factory, how did you get that first client in the door? I'd say mostly thanks to SEO. So three years ago, um, when we built the website, again, I'm a big fan of SEO. So uh, we have been one of the first agencies offering TikTok influencer marketing You know, at the beginning. Um, so we did a landing page called TikTok Influencer Marketing Agency. No competition. So I did a lot of, a lot of di different hacks here and there. So, you know, uh, of course, I used the most possible, you know, Google Maps locations and, uh, and in, in different hacks here and there and, uh, um, you know, and so on. So what, what I did mostly is that, one, we, we still get 95 plus percent of our clients thanks to inbound. We don't really do outbound. And that's how main, like even Fortune 100 companies get to us because they are looking for, a, they, have, they have a problem or they have a need and what is the best way to find you there, right? And well positioned. Then we are, we started to be everywhere. Like I, I started contacting all the different um, directories of influencer marketing. No one was really there. I mean, like they were there, but no one was really there. So I was like, okay, how can I exploit this one? So now if you still look, we are, in, on page one, all the lists that you can find, we are there and we're like first, second, or third, or we're, we're on top all the time, right? So it was like, PPC is expensive. How can I find another way? And so we got on all these lists. And then lastly, um, I, uh, in the years, I started having a, a good relationship with the different journalists. So what I do it is that we create a report for free. Like we did one about social commerce that we are actually updating now. It's gonna, in the next weeks, it's going to be live with an update. 
we did a creator economy, 70 plus pages, and we got exclusive quote from like Jack Conte, the CEO of Patron. Uh, we got, you know, uh, you know, quotes from the CMO of Jelly Smack and 20 more experts in the, in the thing. So like we did a survey. So it's a lot of good information, right? For free. So what we did it is that even back in the days, we started doing a lot of uh, research and data scraping here and there. We were compiling data and blog posts and it was, uh, we were sending out to journalists. And journalists, they need information, right? They need insights. Every day, if you go on different publication and new, news website, you find data and insights. Where do they come from? Mostly from experts, uh, uh, owners of agencies and so on. So it was like, uh, I don't have en- enough money to invest in like, marketing because it was at the beginning. We started with uh, $1,500. That, that, was, that was our VC, our own money. That was it, you know? That was the found, okay? $1,500, so cash, okay? And, um, and so it was like, how can we use some, some, someone else's audience, right? And this is a typical example. Back in the days, Instagram used to have the watermark on their, on their photos, and they were posting on Facebook. And people from Facebook were like, oh, what is this? Oh, cool. You know, let, let's check it out. TikTok did the same. So it was like, how can we use someone else's audience? So I started connecting with journalists, right? And I was like, I'm not pitching you because journalists... I understood right after a while they hate if you pitch them, but what if you give them something for free and valuable? And we get in in, in exchange mentions on different publications, and after that SEO authority and backlinking and mentions all together brought us to a level where, where if you were looking for an influencer marketing agency, we were there. And after a while, word of mouth, uh, clients referrals, and so on. So I'd say that to be honest, because of all the work before uh, and some luck. Also, for sure, in terms of getting to the right moment with TikTok growing and being there as a blue ocean strategy, uh, we got the first clients uh, in the first year and we never sent a cold email outreach to get clients. Not one. After, yes, to find some others, but the first year we only got inbound clients and big ones. Wow. And I'm curious, what was it about TikTok? I know you kind of stumbled onto the app through YouTube compilations. And But the app at the time, the reason most people were on it, it was branded as an app for kids or a social network for kids or teens. So what did you see watching those compilations that made you realize that this is an opportunity for the agency that we need to take advantage of right now? Sure. First of all, you were really good in doing your homework. Wow. Like, I'm, I'm, I am amazed. Like, really, you, you did that. Uh, okay. Well, well, uh, there is good Thank info. You. Yeah, you, you, you're right. You're totally right. I started the, watching compilations because... Uh, I was a big fan of Vine. I still watch compilation of Vine sometimes. So, you know, those like uh, uh, compilation I watch at 3 a.m., uh, you know, uh, instead of sleeping. And I loved Vine. I was in Copenhagen, Denmark back in the days. No one of my friends, no one in college was watching Vine. I was like, guys, you have to check it out. Like, it's, it's fantastic. Six seconds, you can, you can write stories. This is what I loved of um, U.S. Uh, content creators. Back in the days, it was not even, it was Viners, okay? Content creators was not a term. What I loved it is that in six slash seven seconds, some people were able to do movies, in my opinion. Like, they were fantastic. Like, they were able to edit in a way that in Italy, i never seen something like that. Like, they were really good in being directors and cut videos and tell a story in six seconds. So storytelling was big on Vine, and I was a big fan of it. So I was telling to my friends, go check it out. It's going to be a big thing. Then it was discontinued, and we'll know because, you know, Vine acquired that. There was not a business model behind that. The content creators were not paid because it's not, it's not fault of Vine. There was not the idea to pay creators. It's something so new. Like just now, major, pub, major social media starting to pay out. But long story short, I was a big fan of that. 
And so I was watching compilation and then I stumbled upon uh, this YouTube compilation called uh, like uh, worst and best uh, um, cringy TikTok videos. If you remember back in the days, TikTok was not the place for cool people. It was furries and was um, uh, nerds and people playing video games and cosplayers. That was it. So it was like, I'm not really into those type of things, but I was fascinated by the, the I'd say, the views that they were accumulating and the idea that you were able to create the videos like similar to Vine. But also what I loved it is that after a while, I saw more content creators getting on top. And what I loved it is that the, the opportunity to, for everyone to get millions of views. Instagram reach was going down by a lot. I was like, Instagram is not the future. TikTok is because everyone can jump on it and without even a follower, you can get on the For You page. And that's where I clicked and was like, clients will start asking for more views for a better organic reach. And Instagram is not the, is not the answer for them, but TikTok is. And, and then we started promoting that and we got a lot of clients. So it was like a love for Vine and a, a, a sort of blue ocean where like, we, are, we cannot compete under against other agencies that are already in the market from a lot of years and going on Instagram, YouTube. We cannot compete with that. Let's, let's do in TikTok. And, and that was the sort of booster at the beginning. And so the first campaign was a dance and hashtag challenge with Sony Music, right? Correct. Yes, it was like, uh, it was one of the first. Like nowadays, hashtag challenges is for everyone. But back in the day, it was like, what is even that? It was a fun experiment for sure. So it was music, dances uh, all together. So it was, it was quite cool. Yeah. So basically the agency grew with as TikTok grew. I'm assuming like you said, I think it was, you said seven figures that first year. And I'm assuming, assuming it's just continued to grow as TikTok has grown. So getting in early, being one of the first movers was a huge advantage for the agency. Yeah, for sure. Uh, of course, like you, you get into this, uh, as I said before, like into this blue ocean without a lot of competition and brands start recognizing you as an expert, right? Uh, for certain things. So um, I do remember some journalists back in the days asking me like, how is it going with, with TikTok? And I do remember we, we were going like well, but again, there were not that many clients asking for that, especially also like TikTok ads. We started offering that. We, we had the, the beta like for the marketplace and the, and the TikTok uh, ads management tool. It was still in beta and not a lot of clients wanted that. Now, almost every client that do TikTok want also management for TikTok ads. So long story short, we saw I'd say that at the beginning, it was mostly primarily for TikTok. And now we are a more aged agency. And so it's not just relying on TikTok. It's also Instagram and YouTube. We also do research for some clients, you know, and we also do like uh, different bundles. Sometimes maybe we work on other type of campaigns that are not necessarily just social media. So we do more. We did some things on Twitch as well. So now it's more, uh, you know, uh, I'd say split about, uh, you know, things. But at the beginning, for sure, it helped out a lot TikTok. And you're also doing a little talent management as well, right? That's correct. We do have around 20 TikTokers, um, only based in the US. Uh, we, we, we really have a lot of diversity. We have, you know, LGBTQ plus community. We have Latinos. Uh, we have a lot of, maybe, again, maybe because I'm an immigrant living in the States, you know, I, I know what does it mean to be, I'm not a minority because, you know, white male, so I'm, I'm definitely not a minority, but uh I know that it's difficult sometimes to go to another country and different cultures. So uh, we have people from different, um, like different cultures. All of them are mostly in the U.S. mostly because we don't want to. It's difficult, right, to manage different people across the world. But uh, when it comes to talents, and together maybe I don't know, 
I don't know how much is now, 40 million plus followers together. So it's not a super big number. It's, it's a good number for TikTok. Uh, but yeah, we wanted also to experiment and be like, what if we also manage, you know, uh, some of them. So yeah, we, we did it and it's, it's going well. It's, it's fun. How come you decided to, to do the management as well? Was it just an easy thing to add on to the business now that you have a roster of creators, you can easily plug into campaigns and stuff like that. Like what led to you guys looking at that and deciding that that was a good opportunity for the business? For sure. I'd say that one was because sometimes we wanted to have prefer rates and going faster. So imagine that we know maybe sometimes we work with a company that it says we need 10 influencers. And maybe sometimes you're running like late on something and you're like, I have the perfect person here because it's in line everything. You're going to be faster. You have more control and it's going to be usually a preferred rates, right? Because it's your talent. So it's a lot of combination. And also what we said is that sometimes you maybe you find someone with, you know, two, three millions of followers and then maybe explode. Okay. Like one of the person that helps me uh, told me back in the days, uh, Hey, look at this cabbie. He has like two, three millions of followers that he's growing well. And this was some months ago. And now it's no, number two on TikTok. So if you are able to get someone before, it's like the stock market. You get it to a, right? It's like, it's like you get it to a place, right? Where it's uh, really low numbers, but with potential. And if you get there, then you're going to get to maybe people with 10 millions of followers. And then as an agency, you usually get the typical 20% fee and everything. So it's uh, it's, it's, it, it started as a necessity and then it became like another revenue stream with opportunities for, for the agency. What are some of those things you look for in a creator that, to, that, to make you think that they have potential? Some maybe not necessarily to grow the, the scale that, that Gavi did, but for just other creators, like almost like for people listening to this reverse engineer what they should be doing to help grow their account. Like, What do you look for in a creator that you think they have a lot of potential to blow up? So I'd say um, apart from the numbers, is the, <clears throat> the business mindset approach that you can have. We're looking for professionals. Like we are not one of those agencies personally that get, want to get a dozen creators uh, just because they can go to brands and say like, oh, we have a network of 1 billion views. Who cares? That is not value to me. That is numbers. That is vanity metrics, okay? You want to have someone that can be really like a good option for your brands. So we prefer to have like less people, but really selected. So uh, we receive a, a lot of people every day. We do have like a formal line. People can go there and, and um, try to join the agency. And so we can see a part of the metrics and the quantitative analysis that we can do. It's about, of course, the type of content. Like we, we want to be sure that it's brand safe. We don't want people just doing cast words or like whatever. Like we want to be sure that is, there, is a, there is a niche, there is a storytelling that people can be trusted by others. We want to be sure that it is some, so. So we we study a lot the, each each of these potential creators, and as I was saying before, the mindset. We want to be sure that these people, even if you're like young, they have a mindset approach where it's like, okay, this is a job. It's not like a hobby or a side hustle. If I have a client, like if I'm working for an agency, and we do have a client, okay, they are like, you know what, you have you're gonna get paid these to do these de deliverables by this time. You do that. So that's why we do also some, um, you know, preliminary calls with these people because we want to be sure, are these people on point? Like, do they arrive on time on our first call? You know, it's like the same. If you are doing hiring for an employee, you notice these things. Do they thank you after the call? Like, do they, do they tell you, like, thank you for this opportunity? Like, are they, like, people, you know, nice people? Are they trustworthy people? And that's, to me, is the most important the metrics when it comes to your own talents. When, when it comes to 
outreach to other people, then it's more about metrics and content and quality. But your own people, you want to be sure that you have that in mind because to me, that is a core. Uh, as you do for employees, it should be also the same for talents. So I kind of want to walk through with you now the process of just like a campaign from beginning to end, just kind of see a little bit of insight as to how you approach it. I'm curious, when you're coming into a new campaign, what is step one for you? Where do you start every single time? Okay, now, I mean, I, I know some of the parts, of course, like luckily I'm not me anymore to do campaigns. Like I have a fantastic team that that every single day works on, a, you know, a hundred plus campaign for more. Like we, we are doing a lot of a lot of campaigns, but uh so, so I am, I am now in a, I'd say, lucky position where I do more of like, you know, a uh, helicopter view type of things, let's say. But still, I also play around seeing in the ground because I love doing steel growth hacking and everything. So I still do that. But long story short, I'd say that uh, the first of all, it is to understand what are the goals and KPIs of the clients, right? It's important that maybe they have an idea of what they want to achieve and maybe we have to educate them, right? Like, hey, actually, maybe this is not the right social media. Or these are not the right type of combination of influencers because this, this, and that. So first of all, it's a, a call to understand what they want. And for us to understand 100% what is the product about, what is the app, what is like, we want to understand everything. Because then it's going to be us to go there and look for the best influencers. If you don't understand what is the product about, then how can we serve them well, right? So we understand all these type of things, qualitative and quantitative together. Then we go through like, you know, we propose them two, three times at least the, the number of follow, uh, influencers they want to work with, right? So you give an even bigger list based on different things. We use different platforms. We have our own um, internal database. We have our own talents. And after that, we go through the selection. Then there is all the, all the storytelling, right? Like, okay, how can we do this? Is it going to be informational, like uh, educational, funny, entertaining? What is going to be, right? And so we do all these type of things. And then we go through... Um, creativity is, uh, of course, the clients have to check things. So we always say, let's give, uh, you know, to the content creator that freedom, right? But at the end of the day, it's still uh, brand safety. So you cannot just say 100%, let's go blind and uh, yeah, say whatever you want, you know? It's, it's, it, that is, I think, something almost impossible to do. But so we, we try to, to, to combine together, go to a middle ground, right? So all that, all the management, and we are really big on tracking things. So we do have our all sheets, uh, UTM parameters, uh, tracking links, uh, third party for apps, uh, singular.net, apps flyer, you name it. You want to be sure that our clients have uh, an, a, a good idea of what they spent and the price that they got back and the cost per action, per install, per all these metrics, right? So even if you're not a platform per se, we really track everything. So they also, let's say that out of 10 influencers that they working on a campaign, we know these three were the best ones. And we're going to hire them again because of all the metrics. So we do everything like bitlist, UTM parameters, and so on to be sure that we have everything under control. And then at the end, we do our full report, many pages of what we told you, what happened, how can you do best in the next one, how we can help you. Um, so this is it. And, and sometimes it's uh, as fast as two weeks and some other times it takes maybe six months because it's a big activation. But usually overall, that is the step-by-step that we, that we do. Okay. There's a few things I want to kind of unpack from there. Uh, and so in the BC, you said one of the first things, obviously figuring out the goals of the campaign. And 
oftentimes is there some educating the brands you're working with on how to properly define what their goals should be in the KPIs are when it comes to working with influencers? Like, is it different? Cause I've in, in the past, I've noticed people don't fully understand comparing paid ads to influencer to working with influencers. Cause they forget there's additional costs that go into working with influencers as opposed to just doing straight up paid ads. So is there a lot of education you also have to do in the beginning with defining those KPIs? hundred percent. You have to be sure that the client understand that media rights is not something included all the time, right? Paid ads is not included all the time. So you, you want to go on, sometimes with some clients, you want to go on a sort of glossary in terminology. What is an influencer marketing campaign? What is a paid media? What is a Spark ads on TikTok? What is a custom audience? What is a, you want to be on the same page. That's why we have a contrast of four, of course, with each client, but also with each influencer. So we, we, we run hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of contracts. You want to be sure that everyone is on the same page. So are you going to pay for that? Fantastic. You're going to get these deliverables and these, these things and these forecasts. But if you want to run your own, uh, you know, um, you know, watering for, for the post and everything, that is going to be extra. And, and so we do educate them. Some come from a place like they never work with the influencers. So it, it's maybe one call, it's going to be mostly education and be sure that they want influencer marketing. Like they, they know what is it, okay? First of all. And two, maybe other more seasoned, uh, it's more about going technical. Okay, what tracker do you use? Uh, you have done this in the past. Uh, can we integrate that with this other? What about these promo codes? Can we put these, uh, these, uh, these uh, pixel on that page uh, so you can run remarketing? So it depends by the level. That that is easy, like, okay, ABC of influencer marketing. Some other time it's going to be like, how can we integrate this pixel with that custom e-commerce integration that you have? So it really depends, but always the importance of education, because if you, uh, if you educate your clients, first of all, they don't see just you as an agency that execute, but as a partner that they can rely on. When you're reaching out to these influencers, how closely can you predict what the results are going to be? Because one thing I've... I've noticed kind of early on into doing all of this is that sometimes I think the influencers that are going to crush don't do quite as well, but sometimes the influencers I think might just do okay end up being some of our top performing creators. Like how can you predict what, how an influencer's content is going to perform? Good question. I mean, I think that even with the best platforms ever, there is not a perfect formula because even if, even if a even if like someone got the best results with uh, with with a campaign in the past, doesn't mean that it's gonna. It's not sure, right? Uh, like, okay, just because historically speaking, I got this ROI. What if like this is what they say all the time? You can forecast, but if you work in marketing, there is a word that should be banned forever. If you see that, you you are lying. It's guaranteed. Guarantee in marketing do not exist. Like, doesn't exist. And I want to tell this to. All the people starting in marketing and people telling like guaranteed, it does not exist. And you know why? Because you as a marketer, you can do the best job ever. But if the app crashes, the, if the shoes are not delivered in time, if the lipstick is really low quality, it's not fault of the influencer, it's not fault of the agency, right? So, so how can you predict? You can predict based on, on certain things. But for example, something that we say all the time, be sure that your website is optimized and, 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 and in, in, a few, in a less than a second, in, it, it can load. Because if it doesn't load, then again, maybe we're doing all this work, but the bounce rate is going to be 80%. It, 
Is it our fault? Is it your fault that your server is not? You know what I mean? So again, we can have all these historical data possible and we try to all the time to get everything all together, right? So you can, what do you do? You use platforms to understand the demographics. Uh, did they bought fake followers? How they are performing on the For You page on TikTok? Are they declining in the interest? Um, and so on, okay? And then you can also ask them, can you share with me anything in the past? Like what was your CPM, your CPI, your CPA? You get all this information. But again, at the end of the day, each case is different. So what we'd say is that we can give you a forecast depending on, and we also explain why, but we never see we're going to guarantee. The time that clients ask us, can you put guarantee? Even if it's a lot of money, we do not set a contract, mostly because we don't like to lie. And two, then it's liability and everything. And again, if you work in marketing, you see guarantee, that's something that doesn't exist. Everything can go wrong, even if you are top, top one influencer. Things can go wrong for any reason. So you can predict, you can forecast, but you cannot guarantee. Doing this podcast over the last three years, I've talked to a number of different people over the last three years about influencer marketing at different kind of stages. And I feel like a year and a half, two years ago, the big conversation was around micro-influencers, 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 work with micro-influencers. It's better to work with 50 micro-influencers than one big influencer. Has that shifted at all? Is there now like... is or as, as micro-influencers, should that still be the focus if you're looking to run a campaign? Or are you seeing now better results with, with bigger influencers? To be honest, never understood that big, like, you know, love for the army of the micro-influencers. Like, I, and whenever they ask me, like, what is your predictions? You know, I always talk about, you know, like lately I'm talking always, like since one year I'm talking about social commerce. Before that, I was talking about short form videos, like, and, 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 you know, optimization and data, da, da. I never said in my life, like, oh, micro-influencers are there. And you know why? Because it's a lot of work. Like, if you want to manage 50 micro-influencers, it's a headache. And they won't necessarily bring you enough because it's still a small number. So unless you do, unless you don't go with an agency, you go with a platform and you say, I'm going to give no matter what, $100 to everyone that posts, huh? That, in my opinion, is not influencer marketing. It's something else. That is not influencer. Still, people think that that is influencer marketing. Like, nah. If you, if you randomly select people, you know, out of a database, just because they want to work with you, that is not influencer marketing. It's content marketing, call it whatever you want. But it's, there, is no, there is no, I'd say, checks on things. Like, there is no vetting. Uh, but still, if you want to do that, maybe it will work. You know, like, there is uh, good examples of companies that got in the millions of dollars because they've got an army of people. But if you're going to go by yourself as an in-house or with an agency, and good luck in managing 50 people in a month. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's crazy because a lot of micro-influencers do not have that mentality of being professionals. So you have to, like, you have to all the time um, you know, uh, send email follow-ups. Can you send this? Can you send that? So what we do usually, we prefer to mix up things. So never put all the basket, uh, eggs, eggs in a basket. So don't go with one with... 50 millions of followers and that's it. You're going you're gonna to hit or miss, right? What if you get like one big, three medium and five macro? This is what we do all the time so that you can minimize the risk and maximize the, the possibility, especially on TikTok where no matter the numbers of followers that you have, it's the reverse funnel, right? It's not anymore 1 million of people and then only 5% see you. It's like 10K followers, but potentially 10 millions of views. So that's why all the time we say, let's minimize the risk. Let's put our eggs in different baskets. So even if one didn't perform well, well, we do have nine others, but we don't have like 49 others, you know? Uh, so again, micro-influencers, I don't know why this myth came along, like, oh, it's the best. Yeah, it can help, but 
really maybe 50 people all together can bring you results of maybe one medium. So I'm, I'm more of a, a fan of medium influencers because they have that relationship still really strong with their people, but they have a bigger numbers. Uh, and, and so instead of like having to talk with 10 people, you can talk with one. And that in terms of uh, time consumed type of things, uh, it helps a lot. How do you define kind of that micro, mid, and big influencer? I feel like sometimes I've even there was a conversation at one point with like nano influencers under a thousand followers. Uh, but it's like what what are the numbers that you kind of use roughly as like a benchmark for this is this and under is micro, this and under is medium, this and over is big. Again, I don't work anymore in the operation, uh, luckily, so I, I I really don't know. What I noticed is that each social media is different, right? Like you cannot say like someone in my opinion, someone with one million on TikTok is not a macro influencer because it's quite easy to get to a 1 million, right? So to me, that is like medium. I don't want to say it's micro, but it's going to be medium, right? A macro is going to be maybe 5, 10 plus, right? A million, something like that. Um, if you have 100,000, um, you know, on, on okay, 100,000 followers on TikTok, it's easy. 100,000 on YouTube, wow, good luck. Like I, 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 I read somewhere that like to get your first, thousand followers on youtube it takes like 22 months or something like that like that is the average uh, it's or maybe ten thousand. i don't remember it was a small number so again it depends on the social media you're in but i'd say that you know nowadays you know something like one million plus on on instagram you can say it's a macro but again one million on uh, one million plus on 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 tiktok i wouldn't say it's a macro i'd say it's a medium but 1 million plus on, on YouTube, it's a big number because it's really difficult to get there, right? So again, you should take that in consideration. And each year, the number uh, changes, right? Because you still have a long tail, right? Like uh, you, you have that typical, you know, long tail uh, type of, of, of chart. Um, but a long story short, let's say that you should all the time look at, okay, where I'm in now and what is the social media? And also, lastly, where are you located? Being like in Brazil with a million, it's quite easy because it's more population, right? It's easy, right? But if you are one million in Italy, you are one of the top. So there is so many factors and that's why it's difficult to say. But, you know, people want to make things easier to understand, but you, it's difficult to make it something that easy because there is not a price list, there is not a framework and you should all the time consider and factor in different things. So... Again, there is, there is not the perfect answer, to be honest. And all the time you have to consider things, you know. One thing you said with the, the micro-influencers with the reverse pyramid is they might have 10,000 followers, but they could get a million views. But also if you're working with somebody with a million followers and it's not an authentic ad, it could be the reverse where you work with someone with a million and they get 10,000 views. And I wrote a quote down here. You said, I don't know if this is your original quote or if you took it from else, but it was, don't make ads, make TikToks. Yeah, that is not me. It's TikTok.com. Okay. I want to say that loud. But we, I mean, we used to say that also back in the days. Like, um, they also got it with this, uh, this really nice uh, sort of advertisement for themselves. Like, you know, and, and it, is, it is true. Like, you want to be sure that you don't make ads, mostly because, as you said, you know, you're going to pay someone for 1 million of followers, but maybe you're going to do 10, 10K, right? And that's what is cool, especially like one year ago. We used to pay, and two years ago, actually. We used to pay TikTokers really like nothing. And you pay them maybe for maybe, let's say, $200, okay? And maybe you were able to do 5 million of views because you were paying on follower space and not on views yet, okay? Now you might pay for someone with 1 million and they're going to tell you like, hey, I don't care about the views. Now pay me because of my historical growth, you know? So you have to pay me for because I have 1 million of uh, plus followers. 
So that's that's tricky. And when TikTok came along and say like they say they have these big things like don't make ads, make TikTok. It's true. People, Gen Z, millennials, everyone, we don't click anymore on on call advertisement. No one is anymore like, hey, buy these because it's cool. That doesn't work anymore. You want to be entertained. What I say all the time is like, you want to make an ad that you would share to someone. So when you see on TikTok the share icon with a lot of big metrics there, to me, that is a win. Even more than comments and likes, the share is like, I, I not only, because if you comment, it could be like, I comment, it goes in, into this cloud, whatever. But if I share it, it means that I, I'm, I'm taking the attention of someone on my, you know, on my uh, messages, on my WhatsApp group, whatever. So I'm telling like, hey guys, stop what you're doing and watch this. So that was like, it's a, it's a win as an ad. And as so others would like say, I didn't even realize this was an ad. That is a win. Like if, if you have that, of course you have to complain and uh, comply and everything, ad, um, sponsorship, whatever, because you have to come up with the FTC. But if you are able to, like having people that don't even understand what is what, uh, you, you, want, you want to achieve that for sure. Have you, have you guys as an agency noticed if there's a hashtag ad or something on a video, it might do, the performance might be lowered. Like I've, I've seen that in the past where it's like an influencer will post it and they won't put hashtag ad or something. They'll get creative with it and it'll perform better. Like, have you guys noticed anything like that? Um, let's say that I don't have like enough data to, to, to confirm or deny, but let's say that of course social media want to sell ads, right? So whenever any social media, so I'm not pointing fingers to anyone in particular, but any social media of want to want to minimize, uh, you know, ads where they don't get a cut, right? So if you're paying directly the influencer and they put ad, they, they, the social media is not getting anything out of it, right? So they're like, ah, ah, I don't know if I want to show this on the For You page. So again, I'm not, I cannot confirm or deny, but let's say that sometimes we saw. Uh, videos that were definitely shadow banned because of certain... Uh, so again, I don't know if there is a pattern, but uh, we can see that now it's more difficult to get a certain position of organic reach if you put ad. Uh, and now with, with every social media, to, there is a button that you have to, you have to turn on and this says like, uh, uh, I'm, I'm saying that this is an ad. And it goes automatically embedded, you know? You cannot remove it anymore. And again, we do that because we have contracts in place and everything. So of course we have to, uh, you know, um, disclose that. But yeah, sometimes it might be might be tricky, and maybe you go to a client and like, oh, it's gonna go to that point, and maybe you don't get that. And whose fault it is again? Is it uh, bias of the technology that is telling you like, I don't want that to go to the for you page again? Not enough that maybe in one year. Let's see. So it's a big part now when you're working with creators to make sure that the Spark ad is included in that deal so that you can amplify that post further with, with some paid spend? Yeah, we, we, we usually do that. Not just because of that, to be honest. It's also because it's uh, nowadays it's common also on Instagram to have uh, like, you know, white lab, uh, whitening of like blog uh, of posts because again, the organic reach sometimes is difficult, but also you want to be sure to have the clickable link. So we use Spark ads because... Um, it allows you to actually drive traffic somewhere because brand awareness is nice, but um, from the video, you say, let's say, hey guys, link in bio. We had to stop scrolling, first of all, so take the attention of the person, go, go on the account, click on the link, like it's already two free extra moves, right? While if you remove that and you have a clickable link, you can just go there and you know do a click of a button and go to the landing page. Um, 
And then it's going to be more and more there, like especially with social commerce, where you can finalize the purchase inside without leaving the app. Uh, you know, I'm talking about, let's say, Instagram shops that is with the same layout of Instagram, right? And also TikTok now in the UK, it's building up where you don't have to go to the retail website as an embedded browser, but you do everything with the layout of TikTok. You want that. You want a smoothless and frictionless type of step-by-step uh, purchase, you know, as user experience. So if you add one on top, it's difficult. So a lot of the times we amplify with, with Sparks also because we want to show clicks and potential conversions to clients and not just brand awareness because it's not just anymore about vanity metrics, but it's about ROI. If I'm, a, if I'm someone who's never done influencer marketing before and I'm trying to get into it, maybe I own a smaller brand. Is there like an industry average CPM number I should be going for when reaching out to these creators to kind of understand whether I'm getting a good deal or not? Like, is there an industry average number, even just like a ballpark of something they should be striving for when they're doing their campaign? You know, I, I don't think so, to be honest. I saw really, I, I saw people with the same numbers asking one and asking 10. No differences in engagement rate, in community. It's just about how you position yourself. So sometimes it's about maybe some people are really good, just really good in, in selling themselves. So it's not like YouTube uh, CPM where you go and more or less you can have an idea based on the type of industry that you are. Because we all know if you talk about like, if you talk about, let's say, finance and you do credit cards review, your CPM is going to be $50, right? Because everyone is there. But if you talk about, uh, you know, dogs, food, maybe, whatever, then maybe you're going to have a $5 CPM. It really depends. When it comes to influencer marketing, there is not a pricing list. Again, you might have a more or less an idea, but it's all about how you position yourself and, and, and do you have an agent? It's going to be a markup. So again, unfortunately, I don't want to say a number just because it might be totally wrong. And when you say a number nowadays and someone take it and put it in a media, then it's a mess. So now I learned my lesson. I'm like, I don't know. I cannot like verify this information. Just, just so you know, it depends by, again, by, by many factors. And uh, there is, there is uh, unfortunately, it's not a things like, oh, this is good, this is bad. I think that at the beginning, when you get into the game, you're going to get burned for sure at the beginning. And just after a while and doing a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, payments and a lot of uh, negotiation, you're going to learn your way, what is the right price to pay. And that's why a lot of people come to us because we have years of experience and our company managers are so good in negotiating that maybe you can even save money and we can put those money in paid ads. We can get an extra influencer. So, so that's why also, you know, people use agencies because of the knowledge and the relationship with the influencers. When working with bigger influencers now, are you seeing some of them, especially if you're working with startups or things like that, as your client reaching out to bigger influencers, are you noticing that they're wanting equity in companies now? I'm hearing some rumblings that more and more bigger creators when they're doing deals, they'll do it for equity instead of an upfront figure, things like that. Is that anything you've had to negotiate with so far? Not really. I mean, like we got some proposal, but you know what? It's, it's something else. Like it's not anymore just sending a contract. You're going to do two stories, one TikTok, uh, three days linking bio. We're talking about, you know, potentially to, like, okay, you want to be there. Let's talk with the board. They're like, it's a lot of steps. So if it's so cool, like on the one end, because it's like, wow, it's even more. Um, like I talk about this in the creator economy report that we have done. There is a shift now for creators. It's not just anymore creating um, like content where you'd say, hey guys, go check out 20% discount. It's actually building their own, uh, you know, they're building their own products. 
they are making their own makeup, uh, you know, uh, things. They are creating their own coins. They are going in the, I'm reading a lot about uh, decentralized social media where you are going to be able in the next future to bid on people, right? Uh, and so, and so we, it's shifting. It's not just anymore that, but from going for the, the typical influencer to going to, from uh, I'm going to get paid 5K to do this to let's go on a board of people that have a VC behind and want to achieve certain numbers, like, ah, it's something more. So we as an agency, again, we want to stay on our core. So as of now, we don't do that really. But I can see why maybe other talent agencies that have been in the game from 30 years, I, I can definitely see as something new that they should look into that because uh, we are going there. And so again, not for us in the, in the future, but it would be a nice, a good idea for other bigger agencies to look as other revenue stream with a more scalability than just doing something. Because when you, when you do a post, it's your time. I'm, I'm investing three hours of my time in doing this. If you are treated as a stock, it's about scalability. And it's not just about the time, but it's about opportunity, investment, and so on. And so maybe something for another episode, another podcast, but definitely something interesting that uh, people should look into that. Are there any other trends or predictions that you're kind of keeping your eye on right now in the influencer marketing space? Yeah, I mean, many, to be honest, really, really many. So one of the things that, again, now it's getting to, like common to everyone, uh, again, social commerce, but in a really uh, smooth way. So now I can see there is still some like you, in like back in the days, like up to some months ago, you 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 did the you did the com the content, and then you click on a link that goes to an abandoned browser. So the future is gonna be more like you know live streaming shopping, and it's already happening. Like you know Amazon Live, but also YouTube is doing now starting new promotions where you can go mm -hmm. on YouTube. You do not stop the live streaming. You can add things to the cart and buy. So I, I see overall more integration and also more um, like campaigns based on performances for influencers so that they can actually make more money thanks to fees. Because now it's really difficult to track like how many things they were bought thanks to someone, especially if you go to a social, sorry, to a, from a social media to an e-commerce that maybe has an integration that is not trackable. So in time, we're going to see Maybe more brands that are going to tell, like, I'm going to give you 1K, let's say, just a random number, but then you potentially can go, do even more. It's already happening for sure, especially apps they do on performance. But I'm talking about fashion, um, you know, makeup and beauty, uh, travels, and, and so much more on that. So that is something for sure. And in general, as I was saying now, um, more opportunities for content creators and influencers in general to open up their revenue stream and to organize better their work. So now it's mostly like, uh, okay, I do this, uh, I get paid for that, but it's going to be more tools for influencers to manage their monthly expenses and monthly everything. So they're going to be treated as a, as a category of professionals, okay? And so also brands are going to understand that and it's going to be a even different communication between that. And uh, I'm gonna see, we're going to see more influencers in companies that are going to get paid to go in a direction. So we're already seeing that, right? The director of uh, influencer marketing, head of these, of creativities. It's still just a smaller percentage, but I think that more influencers are going to finally be treated as professionals, as people that are making an impact more than just someone with a hobby. So social commerce, uh, booming of the creator economy, more integrations, uh, uh, more trackability 
to go back to influencers and content creators uh, in making even more money. Um, and then lastly, I'd say bidding on people. So we saw that with, with BitCloud, it was more of an experiment, but for sure there is going to be something more de decentralized where influencers don't want to rely anymore only on social media. What if Instagram again goes down for a one, one day? It's a, big, it's a big problem. What if your videos on YouTube are shadow banned? What if, what if, what if? So we're going to see not in the next year, it's going to take more time, but we're going to see a decentralization of social media. So you, instead of rely on social media, you're going to create your own sort of social media with your, your own coins. And if you bid from the beginning on someone and this person grow, you also, as, um, as someone that believes in the person, you're going to also get paid back, right? So it's not just pattern where you give money, you are investing in someone. So again, not it's going to happen in the next year, in, but in the next maybe three, five years, that I'd say uh, overall, how I see influencer marketing growing from, from a side to a big industry. How do you guys, specifically as your agency, I guess, how do you evolve with, with these changes? If creators are more, not focused on as much on doing brand deals now and doing their own products and building their own brands, how do you evolve with those changes? I mean, as of now, there are not that many. I mean, we know Emma Chamberlain, we know, um, we know uh, Mr. Beast, we know many of them, right? They created their own lines. But uh, if tomorrow, let's say, there are going to be more, you can still work with them because then you're going to help them to become a real brand, right? So maybe you're going to work more for the influencers than the brands. And that is what talent agency, what they do, right? But uh, again, I, I'm not that worried about like, even if, uh, even if you create a product, uh, it doesn't mean that it's going to be a success. You still want uh, on the side uh, to, right? Unless that is something, but even the ones that are killing it with their own products, uh, they still make advertisement also for third parties because you want to, again, minimize your, like what if one day you don't sell enough of your own items? You want to be sure that you can also make money. So I'm not worried that it's going to be like, oh, from one day to the other, bam, we, we lose clients. It's going to be in case gradual. And as we understood the TikTok and we're understanding now before a lot of people already more than one year ago, the importance of social commerce, because I'm always following what is happening in China. And if you follow what is happening in China, you know what is happening in the States three years later, right? So now we're looking at the creator economy, what is that? So if you are in the, in, the, in the loop of trends all the time, you are also able to understand, okay, where is it going? And if you take it with advice in, in, in advance enough, you're going to be like, okay, what if many, many people are going to only talk about their own things? Well, you pivot a bit and then it's going to less brand oriented. It's going to more about how can we create a brand with you and, you know, and so on. So Again, it's, it's gradual, so I wouldn't I wouldn't worry as, a, as an agency. Sorry, did you say that that you look to to China and Asia for influencer marketing trends that'll come here in the next couple of years? Yeah, I'd say so. Like I got it that for for TikTok with Doyen, right? I got it that for social commerce because uh, um, you know in 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 China farmers they before were not able to sell because of a big. Uh, uh, I'd say logistic problems like China is big, right? And a lot of farmers were not able to communicate with the rest of uh, the land, right? In China, because uh, they were so remote. But now, thanks to live streaming, they are selling millions uh, of apples and and uh, fruits and veggies, right? So, so uh, a lot of people are selling millions and millions of like beauty products in just you know thirty minutes of because. It, but in that case, it's a different mindset, you know, especially in, in, in China, they are used to see and, and watch live streaming more than the US. They have a, 
they have super apps, right? So you are in one app, let's say WeChat, you are watching a video while sending money to a friend while paying for a bill. It's everything in one place. We don't have that yet in the States and in Europe even less. So, so, so if you look what is happening there, they're like more than 10 steps ahead. So if you watch what is working there, you're going to see, you know, so before back in the day, it was like China is copying what the U.S. is doing. Now, I think in the last three years, U.S. copied all the features that you can find in China. And so if you want to see what is going to happen in the next future, always check what is happening in China to see what is also going to happen in the States. What led to that flip now where China is like 10 steps ahead in the world of influencer marketing and social commerce? They are just used to, they are just used to like consume more of key opinion. Like they don't even call it influencers, like they call it key opinion leaders, right? So for them, and I talk also with people that spend a lot of time in China. Cupino leaders in China are gods. Like pe- people look at these people and if there is like a drop during a live streaming, eh, millions of people. It's not like in the States, it's a joke compared. Like we have what maybe, oh, if you have 20,000 people all together, you're going to go on the news. In China, because it's a one point what, plus billion population, it's quite easy to get millions of people right there because it's just on a different scale. But more people have FOMO and they want to buy in, and they trust so much their Kyopino leaders that they're gonna buy anything that they say. So it's, 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 it's a different culture, a different approach for sure. But again, if you want to see how you can integrate payment system, live streaming, social uh, commerce, and all these type of things, look at China because they created a super apps and they have a one place to do everything that we are missing in the States. But if you look what is happening there, you're gonna understand what is gonna happen in the next future also here. And that's just something I've, I've talked about um, social selling and stuff in the past on this podcast, uh, but I never realized how far ahead they were. Like I saw some of the big live streaming numbers, but I just didn't realize that the impact that that they were having over there. One other thing that I want to ask you quickly about in terms of like the future of where all this is heading is you became, was it the first agency on the planet to accept crypto or one of the first ones to start accepting crypto? I think so. I mean, like we did the news mostly because uh, I didn't find anything about it. So we said, I think they were the first or one of the few. Uh, we, we have a, a lot of clients and, um, you know, especially when it was a big peak of like, you know, everyone by the crypto, I'm talking about like six months ago, we had a lot of people on, you know, NFTs and crypto telling us like, hey, we have this project. Do you, do you accept crypto? And we got many requests. So we were like, yeah, why not? And so we started attracting crypto. Yeah. That's awesome. I just saw, I saw that headline and I had to ask you about it because I didn't realize that you were one of the, one of, if not the first, that's awesome. I mean, again, I, I, I don't know like how many, I, I, again, like maybe some people do and they just didn't do a PR about it. So again, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe they're like address that they're like, oh, we started accepting 10 years ago, uh, you know, with the beginning of Bitcoin that maybe was eight years ago, something like that. But, but, but we did it mostly because again, it was an opportunity. To be honest, we don't accept all the time because we do some screening, especially in the crypto. You never know, right? With all the scams and everything. So we want to be sure. And we only accept smaller amounts, right? Because you never know what is going to happen tomorrow with crypto. Because, you know, even if you love crypto, it's really uncertain. So you cannot base too much an agency that based on cash on crypto. But we were like, why not? I mean, like if we get like amounts that be smaller compared to the US dollar, we can put in our in our Coinbase wallet and, and it's going to go and grow and everything. So so we saw like the agency world, sometimes it's a bit um, old school in certain things. And we wanted to say, 
not only we are all the time understanding what is going to be next, how can we show these actually? So let's accept crypto. I think the the agency model and how how what's wrong with it and how you guys are doing things differently could be a whole separate podcast. I think we're we're running out of time here, so I I don't want to dive into that because we'll be here for another hour if we do. Um, but I do want to ask you how often do you take the time to reflect on everything, to look back to that that twelve thirteen year old kid who's learning to make his first website all the way to where you are now. Like how often do you reflect on the whole journey? Maybe not enough. To be honest, I'm really hard on myself all the time. Like I, uh, it's my personality. I I rarely see uh, the winning, you know, that I that I do. Even if like sometimes like, hey, I came with nothing, just two co-founders from Milano, uh, no money in our pocket, no connections, and we did like a multi-million dollar company with with really like nothing. Sorry for nothing, less than three years. We have now a, a team of almost forty people, you know, and and we manage big brands. So. If I look at that, I'm like, wow. But to be honest, you know what? You are so much into the daily operation. You're so much into more and creating that it's um, you don't stop enough, I'd say. And, and that is something wrong, I'd say. We as, as entrepreneurs, we should stop a bit more and cheers to ourselves, uh, even if uh, we are not winning. Just like, hey, I'm, I'm doing it. Because like a lot of people do not realize how difficult it is to be an entrepreneur. Especially for mental health in an agency, it's 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 really difficult. You know, when you when you build things, uh, you have so many hats on your head. So so to answer your question, do I reflect? I, I do sometimes, not as much as I should. Maybe maybe if I did more, I would I would be even more like even happier to what I'm achieving. But um, you know, uh, sometimes I'm more silly, like okay, what's the point in looking back? Like let's look at the future. So. I, I like that I'm growing as a professional, as a human being. I'm learning so much, but I don't want to be too much in the nostalgia of like, uh, you know, oh, okay, yeah, when I was a kid, I did that. Yeah, it's like looking all the time at what is going to be next, you know, and uh, and th- that is something that, you know, we Italians, we look back all the time. That is the problem. We look at the past. We don't look at the future. So something that I wanted to left out as the Italian DNA is like, don't look too much what I, what I was. Let's look what I want to be, you know. Uh, so that that's how I see it now. Has your definition of success changed over the years? Okay, I know this because because I know this I know this um, because you're not the first one that asked me that. But uh, when I was uh, uh, around twenty something, okay, I looked at myself as uh, my okay. My dream was to be the next Silicon Valley company with hundred million dollars in Series A. Like I was, you know, the one that I now I hate. I wanted to be that person. I even uh, went to Y Combinator when I was 23, something like that, you know, uh, with a company I was working with, a startup. And it was quite cool. Like we did a 10-minute speech in front of the CFO of Y Combinator. And I was 23 and was sitting on the same chairs that like Uber and PayPal and all the others were like founded. So I was like, wow, this is cool. And, you know, uh, first time there. So I wanted that. Success to me was like, uh, you know, be powerful enough to have all those monies and be the next uh, genius kid, whatever. Then I changed that and was like, you know what? There is something more interesting here. There is having a good balance between the work and life and being friends and having a family and everything. And I just switched it. And um, before I was like more the typical white male uh, with alpha that tried to achieve everything and be the, and unfortunately a lot of people are dickhead. Like I don't like the majority of CEO because they're like always being, want to be that type of personality. 
And I was like, let's go away from that. Let's have a good balance. Let's try to be a good person, a good employer, uh, someone that can teach the others. Making money, because I'm not going to lie, I'm mostly doing it also because of that, right? But without the idea that, oh, I want to change the world. Because no one in Silicon Valley, in my opinion, as of now, is changing the world, unless maybe just a few people. All the others are making mostly platforms, thanks to money they got from a VC that are creating a platform that is the majority of the times useless. So I'm, I was like, what's even the point to lie to myself? Like, I want to be this person. Let's do something that make me happy, but in, the, in a range where I can still also see in France, going out for dinner and, and enjoy life, mostly because I enjoy life more than working. And some people in Silicon Valley enjoy more working than having a life. And that's not for me, to be honest. I, I want to go out and having pizza with friends, you know, that, that's what, and they're also creating something on the side, let's say, you know. So. No, I like that a lot. I think that's good for people to hear that. Because I feel like people sometimes think they can't have that as their definition of success. So they can't have that balanced life as the definition. It has to be one of It the doesn't other. exist. I don't think, like, I, unless you're really good in managing your time and you do not burn out, whenever you see on, on YouTube, on Instagram, anyone that posts uh, amazing pictures, they also, sometimes they are fake. But I know entrepreneurs, uh, they are really killing it, uh, but you don't see the other 23 hours that they spend during the day in front of a computer alone, uh, in struggling. So you can still get there, but not just randomly or for a chance. You have to work 16 hours a day when you're an entrepreneur, especially at the beginning. Now I'm able to work less, but you don't achieve that without working that much. So if you want that and you want to see friends, you have to, you have to choose, you know, you have three things. Health, um, career, and friends, you cannot choose all of them, I think. Like, as of, at least I was in now. If you want to be healthy and eat well, uh, then you cannot see friends because if you go out drinking, like you cannot do that. So you can, so, you know, you have to choose and maybe the nirvana, it is to get to all of them, be successful, healthy life and see people and social life, but it's really difficult. And in, so far in my life, I only had two of the, of, of, of three. Uh, so, you know, it, it's difficult to have all of them and don't believe that it's going to be like easy to achieve because there is a lot of work behind that. So, yeah, I think you're right. Um, but before I let you go, I want to do a quick little rapid fire. It's the same question I ask everyone at the end of every interview. It's just first thing that comes to mind is five questions. First one being, you're going to dinner. You can take anybody dead or alive. Sure, you take three people. It could be anybody dead or alive. Who do you take to dinner? Uh, oh my God, this is difficult. This is really difficult. I don't know. I don't know. Oh my God. I, I'm, not, I'm not good with these questions. Um, I don't want to say like common things like, you know, Elon Musk, you know, and these type of things. But uh, but he's a crazy guy. But 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 I, I, I like what what he's doing and everything. I, you know what? I I I don't have an answer for you. Mostly because I I don't have guru in my life. Uh, I, I I check everything, but I don't have gurus. And uh, I, I actually let me tell you this. Maybe I wouldn't go out with dinner with anyone that I have in my mind because I might be disappointed by the person in real life. So I, I maybe I want just to have the idea they have in my mind more than actually meeting the person. So I'm going to tell you that. What's some of the best advice you've ever gotten? Uh, stick with one thing. When I was younger, I did many projects, okay? And all the time I wasn't focusing. Three months in something, oh, it's not working. Let's jump on the other. I'm doing the agency. Let's only do that. What's one thing about you people wouldn't expect? Maybe for, for a lot of people, uh, they now see me as, as, as like more on the business. Uh, I think that they, they would like to see my, my Italian... DNA that is about like, you know, joking and staying together and everything. Because a lot of times when I go public, you know, uh, with interviews and things like that, I had to be formal, right, in a way. 
and so maybe they they think that I'm really like into my you know really into into certain things and you know I'm this type of like CEO that wants that so maybe a lot of people think expect of me still being that funny person that you can go out and have, having a blast uh, so so and, and I hope that they're gonna you know encounter more people that can see me in real life now after COVID on that side as well. What's one thing that's so important everyone needs to know? I, I'd say in general, like, oh my God, I want to say common sense things because I hate those things. But uh, you, you, want, you want to create something in your life that is not just because the others are doing that. Again, like to go back to what I was saying, it's not because you have this idea in your mind that, you know, you have to do like 100 millions to be happy and everything. After a while, do not fight against your instinct of maybe changing yourself just because you're happier in the way. So if you, after a while, you are feeling that you are changing your personality, you are just growing up as a human being. So just not to fight it because, oh, this, I wanted to be that. I was going to go and all the time I had to crush it because, nah, who said that? You don't have to, you, have, you don't have to die to get on something just because you told yourself if you are able to change your mind and change your path, whatever. So feel free and don't get too much of pressure on yourself because too many people are too 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 hard on themselves because they are not maybe achieving certain goals. They are not anymore the goal that they had in mind because it's not what they are making them happy. For the last question, I like to flip the script a little bit. So instead of me asking the question, it's you asking the question, but it's not to me. So pretend you have a crystal ball. You can ask this crystal ball any question. You'll get the 100% honest answer. What is one question you want to know the answer to? I don't like maybe back in the days I would ask like, you know, about my career, whatever. I'm just going to ask like maybe if I can know about myself, when it's going to happen, like, you know, myself in, in 10 years, mostly to see if I'm going to be like a person happy with what like I achieved. Because that would help me to go back in time and maybe change things, you know? Again, at the end of the day, for me, it's not just anymore about, you know, the, the money, the success, the career. I don't do that for the glory. So if I could ask myself what I'm going to be in 10 years, I'm going to be like, I, am I happy with my situation, with having a family, with having this successful career on my, um, in my, on my back? Did I do everything possible to achieve this uh, sort of like a nice space? where I'm like, okay, I did everything. So I, I don't have like any regrets. Um, th that would be maybe something, you know, that I would ask uh, mostly myself in potentially in, in 10 years because now I'm 30 years old. And I think that when you get in your 40s, it's a, it's a good benchmark, right? To, to look back. And so I just want to be sure that I did everything, no regrets and I'm happy. That's it. It's an important question to ask. I think it's a good one. But I want to give you the floor now. Where can the people find you? Plug anything and everything you got right now. Okay, so I finally can plug our new podcast, The Influence Factor. We just started it, okay? We did one episode about the creator economy. What about TikTok trends? What about the metaverse that we just you know, published? The next one is going to be about social commerce. So they can find us, of course, on Spotify if they want to see us on YouTube, Apple Music, you name it. And then, of course, they can check out our website if they want to see some of the case studies that we have done, clients that we work with. And if they want to connect with me, I'm always super happy to connect with new people. They can do that on uh, LinkedIn. So just if you look for Alessandro Bogliari on LinkedIn, they can find me there. Or even on, uh, on Instagram, uh, they can reach out there, send me a DM, whatever. I, I, two years ago, something like that, I got my, uh, my blue badge there. So all the time that I can on Instagram, just you know, brag about it and having that blue badge there. And so jokes, jokes apart, they can reach out there. I'm always happy to connect with new people and share things. So... I'd say that, but the one that I want now to push a bit more is the podcast because it's, uh, 
you know better than me. It's a lot of work, right? So if I can, if I can push it there out and get some nice, uh, you know, views, plays, and and the ratings, uh, I'm gonna give that as a first priority. Let's say. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure everything's linked in the show notes down below so people can find it. But I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. And I want to thank everybody for listening. Whether you've listened the entire way through and listened to bits and pieces, I really appreciate you taking time to check this out. Everyone, do me a big favor. Go and check out the Influencer Marketing Factory's brand new podcast. Like I said, it'll be linked in the show notes down below so you can find it. If you'd like to follow me, find me everywhere on social media at the Jacob Kelly. Feel free to come and say hello. My DMs are always open. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. Thank you once again for listening, everybody. We'll talk soon.